this episode of The Interface, I speak with David Rosenboom, Director of Marketing at Amphenol Assemble Tech. David is based in Houston, Texas, and has been with Assemble Tech for 26 years. We talk about Assemble Tech's business, their core competency in internal high-speed cable assemblies, and the endless possibilities of the Internet of Things. We talk about how Assemble Tech was started in Texas as a small family-owned business and the wild story of how taking a major risk to satisfy a huge computer customer quickly led to massive growth for Assemble Tech. We talk about taking a couple of years off to be a fishing guide, but realizing he missed the fast-paced business world and coming back. We talk about continuing to love fishing, playing his guitar in his free time, and we discuss his Desert Island album, book, and movie. This is The Interface. So David, first of all, thank you for uh, agreeing to do this today. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Now, you are the Director of Marketing for Amphenol Assemble Tech. You're based out of the Houston area. Um, I'll be honest, I don't know much about Amphenol Assemble Tech. So first, can you just give me a description of what Assemble Tech is all about? So Assemble Tech reports into the AGIS group, which is the value add group. Our core competency is internal high-speed cable assemblies or uh, high-speed IOs. Okay. Uh, we do uh, some other harness work, uh, general harness work, uh, DC low-voltage power solutions and stuff like that. But our core competency is in internal high-speed cable assemblies. So with your core competencies, what are the areas like uh, the the markets, the applications that you're usually targeting, the customers that you're talking to, just to give a general sense of where you guys like to play? So that's a great question. So we started life, you know, working with computers and uh, servers and doing the internal IOs in that technology, you know, working with, you know, the big players in the IT uh, datacom market. And with the internet of everything, that's kind of migrated into all aspects of life. Mm. And we just kind of followed that, right? Anywhere that you have a processor, you have data being moved around inside of the machine or an enclosure. And we connect all of those pieces. We connect the processor with the peripherals inside the box. So if you think about anything that has an enclosure and a, and a processor, whether it's a gas pump, or a slot machine now. I mean, they've gone yeah. from analog to digital. As that migration has taken place, we've just kind of followed that from uh, uh, PCs and, and the server world in the IT datacom uh, infrastructure. The, the Internet of Things is, I'm probably saying something that's completely obvious, but is incredibly fascinating, of course, for everybody in, in right. life and how that is is evolving over time. And I think we're becoming so used to it without even realizing we're becoming used to it. As you see opportunities for, you know, some of these applications for IoT with your various products and, and capabilities, are there some that you're just like, wow, I would have never thought that our products would have been in that? Or are you surprised often or, or do you have a fairly good idea of what's coming? Well, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time yeah. and it's been a, uh, an interesting journey. Yeah, I would say the first half of my career was pretty much, you know, in the PC and the server arena. Right. But as these uh, uh, other technologies emerged, I kind of, you know, I mean, being a curious person in, in marketing, you kind of look and see and then tr try to imagine where this technology is going to go. And I have to tell you, that's one of the most rewarding parts of my job is to see all of this emerging technology 
and how uh, putting processors and making intelligent hardware has improved our lives, improved efficiencies, uh, productivities. That's the positive side. On the scary side, I think we tend to be a little more dependent on that technology. Scary, yes, I kind of agree with you, right? Like you kind of almost wish you could go backwards a little bit just to be a little less dependent on all this technology. Uh, But at the same time, it's certainly opening up uh, a broad range of opportunities for assemble tech and others. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When we're talking about assemble tech products specifically, or maybe some product names that you like to promote to uh, various customers, whether it's some that you know, or ones that you have never really interacted with before. What are some of the products, like if they were to look at a at a catalog, you might not have a catalog per se, but just some of the things that you like to promote, the top three or four, especially some new ones. So interesting enough, Assembletech doesn't have a catalog of right. products, right? We use common I.O. interfaces, and then we customize them to the application. But some of those I.O. interfaces would be SAS and SATA. Uh, PCIe is is really really taking a main stage today. I, I would say that you know th- those type of protocols, Ethernet protocols, you know, in the telecom space, or or some of the other um, uh, technologies, and these are uh, data technologies, right? And we have specific products that will support that. Some of them overlap, you know, as far as uh, connector technologies, but all of them are customized to individual applications. You know, the right mechanical form factor, as well as, you know, routing, you know, you have to, I like to say I'm kind of a, a, a fancy plumber, right? We have to yeah. route all of this, uh, this cabling within an enclosure and make sure it fits in the, uh, in the mechanical enclosure. How much do you work with other Amphenol business units, not only within AGIS, but, but outside of AGS and just the broader Amphenol group as a whole? So that's another great question. We work really, really close with the connector manufacturers. AICC um, mm-hmm. is a large division. Uh, we work with a lot of individual P&Ls. We work really, really close with CMIO, which is the commercial products group. Uh, they tend to, and, and you have to understand the principle. We work on the cable assembly, which is typically the plug side. Right. But there is a board side mating connector that we have to interface with. And quite often, CMIO or one of the other AICC groups, whether it's HSSIO or one of the other groups, will do the the uh, uh, the board side interface and quite often uh, help us with the plug design or even manufacture the plug design as well. Uh, that makes sense that you'd work a lot with them because, as you as you pointed out, being really part of the value add uh, cell of AGIS, which is what you know largely what AGIS is about. Um, having to, you know, have good relationships with the connector manufacturers within Amphenol is certainly, well, it's vital for your success for sure. Absolutely. So can you tell me a little bit about the history of AssembleTech, just AssembleTech itself? Yeah. So I started out in the electronics industry in the mid 80s. So that tells you, you know, working on this new invention called a PC with a startup company. And this is prior to AssembleTech. Uh, called Compact Computers. Yeah. And I uh, I came from the oil field. And it was in the mid-80s when the oil field was in a, in a really precarious situation. And one of uh, the engineers I worked with went to a uh, went to work for a distributor who was doing a CM. Some of his customers had asked if you could 
put these connectors and cables together and uh, they created this uh, contract manufacturing division of the company. And there was a, a, a really good friend of mine. He worked in the, in the quoting and estimating department. I was working as a, a manufacturing engineer on the production floor. Mm -hmm. And we took that through uh, the early 90s. And the company decided to move into uh, full integration and de-emphasize the cable assembly portion of that uh, as it pertained only to their box builds. So there was a lot of other standalone cable assembly business they were turning away. My friend was uh, approached by a venture capitalist to start up a company, and he took he left the the company we were working for. Uh, we had a uh, an indie or a non compete where he couldn't hire people away for a year. Yeah. So it took him about a year to create, you know, the the company and get a building. I mean, we literally started the Symbol Tech from scratch, and a year and a day later, I joined. Him. Wow. And, yeah, and this was in Sugarland, believe it or not. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there was a lot of business that I was asked to turn away, you know, because it didn't fit the uh, the integration the business strategy of, of the company we were both working for. So they said, well, do you know anybody that, you know, is, is doing the cable assembly business? So I just referred him over to, uh, my, you know, the, the other guy who actually started the, the business with the venture capitalists. And then, like I said, a year and this was in uh, in '96 that mm -hmm. I joined Assemble Tech, and we literally were maybe 30 people. You know, he he had you know basic, and he was doing some really small jobs. It was interesting to start a company up from the ground floor. Yeah, and and uh, I, I I told my partner, I said, look, you know, I I'm okay to you know, do the, the manufacturing engineering and getting the plant and all of that stuff organized. But I want to go out and, and do uh, fuel sales because that's what I was doing when I left the other company. And uh, there was a, uh, another company in Austin, a little startup company that uh, it was Dell Computers. And uh, at that startup. time, yeah, just, uh, it was, it was actually, uh, and I, it, when, when, we actually called on Dell. They were working on their first PowerEdge server. Okay. Uh, they had they had been doing PCs and they wanted to enter into the server arena, and they were working in these warehouse buildings uh, uh, in in a suburb of of Austin. And uh, here we are, this little bitty small startup company. And I knew some of the guys that had had gone into engineering there from Compaq. So. I actually helped them design the first server it, it, as far as the cable assemblies went. Wow. And, and uh, when it came time for production, the, the production buyer says, look, I, you know, I have to give it to your competitor uh, because you guys are too small to do the production. Right. And it was, uh, it was pretty upsetting to us, you know, that we had done this work. And so we, we lobbied and lobbied and lobbied. And uh, he finally gave us a, he said, look, I want to, I'm going to give you a piece of cable business. And he said it's for one of our highest runner uh, PCs, and it was just a flat ribbon cable with two connectors on the other end of it. He said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna show you the environment that we're gonna work in, and if you can keep up, we'll give you more business. But don't be surprised if you can't keep up." Mm. And uh, sure enough, it was maybe about a half a million cables. Wow! And the, the, yeah, the first delivery was uh, about two hundred thousand cables, and we had to deliver them in like six weeks. And that it was to a uh, Makia Dory down in Mexico. 
And one of the investors actually, I mean, it got down to the last day, the last minute had rented a, pli- a private plane and <laughs> we flew the cables uh, out of Hooks Airport to the Maquila Dory uh, down in Mexico and made the delivery. And that's how we, uh, that was our first big major break. I mean, we were doing some some smaller yeah. local cable assembly business, but that was our break into the Dell relationship. And uh, within within five years, we grew from you know zero in sales to almost $50 million in sales. We oh, were the fastest, yeah. we were in the top 10 fastest growing companies in Houston, uh, like four years in a row. That's that's a great story. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's not exactly uh, the cost-effective way to ship your product. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we make money on that cable assembly or not, but no, it but, was. But you absolutely yeah, yeah. had to do it. I mean, there's no to, question. Yeah, there's yeah. it's cost be cost be darned, so to speak, right? Yeah, right, right. It was something you had to do in order to to assure the the future of the business. I'm glad you shared that. I'm glad we we right. got into that because. Uh, that really speaks volumes to probably why ultimately you became part of Amphenol, right? Is that spirit of, look, we just have well, to, we have to get it done, right? Right, right. Inter- interesting enough, uh, at the same time, we ended up becoming over those five years, a major supplier to Dell, which was no surprise. Uh, that was the, the good news. The bad news is they were the largest part of our uh, revenue stream. Yeah. And Amphenol at that time was trying to get into uh, Dell from the external high-speed cable business. And I met some of the guys within Amphenol. And, and at that time, we were buying connectors from everybody. We we had, you know, we, we didn't build our own product. So we were buying from all of the players in the market, which Amphenol was obviously one of the 800-pound gorillas in the room. Yeah. And so you know, I knew these guys, right? And I knew them from my previous job, right? That was, uh, I mean, I had built all of those relationships. We had the same uh, supply chain, if you will. Mm-hmm. One of the general managers of AIPC, which is where Mark was the general manager, right. was focusing on the external high-speed cables. And uh, they, you know, they were asking us, would we be interested in, in selling the company? And I said, well, I mean, that's not up to me. There were some principal owners that had 51% of the, uh, of the company. Mm-hmm. And I introduced these people, and that's where the negotiations for the acquisition came and this was uh, another really interesting story. The acquisition was made uh, two weeks before 9-11. Wow. The, uh, the deal was inked. And two weeks later, uh, I mean, everybody knows what happened in 9-11. Yeah. And uh, several of the executives had said if that had delayed even a month, it probably wouldn't have happened. Wow. That's, yeah. that's amazing. So you're this little tiny startup company, right? Just a handful right. of people. You take a humongous gamble. You take this huge order from Dell where it's, you know, all the pressure is on you guys. Right. You you do everything in your power. You get it done. And then you grow. You're one of the fastest growing businesses in, in Houston, which is saying something because that's, right. you know, that that's big time, um, not only in Texas, but in all of the United States. And then you get affiliated with Amphenol. How much did that change things for you then, perception-wise? Or you, were you already well-known enough as just assemble tech on your own in the industry? Or did Amphenol then just take it to another level? It, it actually, uh, we were pretty much a regional company in Texas. I mean, you have to understand at that time, there, there were several large uh, PC manufacturers. At, at, at that point in time, you had Dell, 
you had a company called CompuAd who was also doing point of sale. Uh, you had NCR, mm -hmm. uh, you had uh, Compact. Right. So we had kind of a local presence, but when we were acquired from, uh, when we were acquired by Amphenol, that gave us a national presence and access to a larger amount of capitalization. Part of the reason why we were so successful was timing of, of the market. We hit the dot-com craze just about perfect, but we also had really, really strong uh, financial backing, which afforded us to capitalize on that growth. Right. And then when we were acquired by Amphenol, they were such a financially stable company uh, that they also afforded us not only access to a national market and other resources, but uh, that that financial capitalization uh, to leverage growth. I mean, without without the capital to grow, uh, you can have all the opportunity in the world and you just kind of, you know, kind of have to look for funding and stuff. So it was a huge benefit for us to to be acquired by it. Right, right. And you've expanded. You have other facilities as well, right? You have China. Well, yeah, at yep. that time, we had actually started in China. That was mm -hmm. one of the uh, uh, mandates from Dell is that they were moving uh, manufacturing to Limerick, Ireland, mm -hmm. uh, and then also in Shaman, China. And one of the prerequisites to be a core supplier is that we had to be uh, in China. So prior to our acquisition, we did have a factory startup, and that was very interesting. Uh, most people were looking at Miquiladores down in Mexico, mm -hmm. and the supply chain had already grown past that. And we were you know, really lobbying with Dell to say, hey, let us do something local here in Mexico. And they said, look, if you if you want to be with us in the future, uh, you have to put a facility in uh, in China. Yeah. And they gave us the target and uh, it, it took us about a year to get a factory there. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I mean, that's where the factory is today. It is uh, uh, the low cost. The, the main uh, facility for Assemble Tech is in Shaman. We have since, uh, with you know, with the geopolitical stuff, have opened up operations in Vietnam as well. The mothership, if you will, is, is still in Shaman. That's a great history. I mean, yeah. it's a fantastic history from just kind of going, I'm going to break off here and maybe start a little something on the side and now look at right. you guys. That's, that's amazing. And you basically, you know, for all intents and purposes, being with this from the, the inception, in essence, right. I mean, you might have started a year later, but you certainly were aware of what was going on. Right. That has to give you a, a quite a sense of satisfaction at this point. It's been a wonderful career. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's very, very demanding. I did take a sabbatical. Three years after we were acquired, I uh, was a little bit burned out. I mean, you got to understand running close to 150 miles an hour with your hair on fire, yeah. you know, has a stress to it. Yes. And uh, uh, I did take a couple of years off mm -hmm. and then going from, you know, 150 miles an hour down to school zone speeds. Yeah. And I was in my, you know, I was in my mid 40s. So I was really too young to try to to retire. Actually, I'd always aspired to be a fishing guide. And I yeah. said, you know, this is the time to do it. So I bought a little place on the coast uh, a little bit further down south about mm -hmm. they call it the coastal bend area in Port O'Connor, Texas, and, uh, and decided to try my luck at uh, being a fishing guide because yeah. uh, I love fishing. And I'd always thought, you know, romanticized, you know, being this, this coastal fishing guide and I actually had a pretty good little business, but, yeah. uh, dealing with the public and, uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> I, I got to where I, I didn't like fishing anymore. 
<laughs> so I won't ask. So, yeah, yeah. So you can only imagine, yeah. you know, are you a real captain? How deep is the water? You can see the bottom, right? I mean, yeah. they're in shallow bays, but I, all, all of these things, it just got to be uh, where uh, one of my passions was now just another grind. Ah, that's, and, that's too bad. Yeah. And, I, you know, I miss the, the mental stimulation of what I was doing. I really, really like this business. Uh, yeah. And it's because of the tech and all of, you know, being able to see all of these wonderful things from their birth, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as these things hit the market, you're right on the on the front edge of development uh, yeah. of these interesting technologies as they come around. And uh, I was, I guess I was underfoot of my wife too. So she told me, she said, you got to go find something to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I had a two, a, a two year non-compete with, with, uh, with Amphenol when I left. Right. And I, ca- I called my, uh, my old boss, uh, Jerry. And I said, you know, Jerry, they're, uh, they're a P- Jerry train. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I said, there are, some of your competitors that are asking me if I want to go back to work. And he said, why don't you come back to work for us? And I said, it's great, but I don't want to do account management. Right. I've been there. I've done that. I'm ready to do something else. And he offered me a position as the uh, regional uh, sales manager for the Western half of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I went back uh, to work for Amphenol in, uh, I guess it was uh, 2006 after, you know, being off for a couple of years. And we had gone through, you know, after 9-11, Civil Tech had kind of declined in sales. I mean, the whole market, yeah. I guess, had taken the a little burst. bit of a hit. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't as in good a shape as it was in its heyday. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to, you know, bring business to them. And we were struggling as far as operations. And I uh, met the new general manager, uh, Alan Yang. And this is after I'd been working for Jerry for a couple of years and, you know, back and forth trying to get back on the, uh, uh, on the growth curve. And Alan had just joined the company a couple of years prior to that, I guess, or sometime in that two year period I'd, I had left. And uh, he offered me the uh, director of marketing position. Yeah. And I had such a, I guess, uh, a fondness for the company. I mean, it, you see this thing grow from nothing and see it struggling a little bit. I, I took the opportunity to work with Alan to try to get the company back, you know, where it was. Yeah. And we've had successful years of growth ever since. Yeah. And Alan had a really, really keen uh, sense for leadership. He knew the Chinese system very well. He was uh, very good as far as managing the operations. And uh, I just tried to do my best in, in, in the marketing part. And uh, we've had a winning combination ever since then. And, since you've come back and, and assumed this role over the last you know dozen or so years, I'm assuming it's not 150 miles an hour with your hair on fire, but still at a good pace. No, yeah. I mean I'm sure I, it, it went straight right you know right right back to the uh, <laughs> oh, okay yeah it, it, I mean you're either in this business or you're not okay you know? fair enough yeah That's yeah a fair point so yeah. I, I can tell you that. Uh, uh, the flexibility of the company allows you, I mean, I basically worked, you know, out of a, an office in Houston, but I traveled so much. I, you know, I'm, I worked out of my home a lot too. Mm-hmm. So it was challenging sometimes to balance work and home life, but it wasn't like you had to be at a nine to five job right. plus the additional. So you just figure out a rhythm and you go where, you know, the assignments take you. And uh, when you're home, you're home. And when you're gone, you're working for the you know, trying to grow, to grow your business. So you try to seek out equilibrium on balance. 
but it is a very high paced environment. That's no doubt. I certainly see it all the time as well. So, but that's, you know, that's what we sign up for. That's what makes it fun. Like you said, in that it, mental stimulation. It's the mental stimulation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe yeah. some time away too. Like you, you accepted it more um, after you came back. Well, you miss it. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. I, I, I hate to say it, but some people are geared for that high pace, constant change. And, uh, you know, you, you either surf the wave or it crashes over you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some people are geared for that. Some people are geared for fielding questions on how deep the water is. Well, you can see the bottom, <laughs> exactly. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, do you still, I mean, I, so I'll shift gears away from Amphenol here then. So do you still at least like to fish on your own without having oh, to yeah take people around i'm hoping it didn't you know kill that love of fishing at least when you did all no that. no no I, I i i love the outdoors you know on a personal note you know i, I like i like to play my guitar but i okay. do still like fishing yeah i i didn't completely get burned out on on going it, it is interesting dealing with the public though <laughs> yeah i can imagine i mean i i probably would have been like you after a couple of years too i only had one rule when i was a fishing guide really is uh that, you know, they hooked the fish and not me, because uh, that did happen a couple of oh, times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I would have that rule too. Yeah. Born and raised in Texas. What else did yes. you like to do as you, as you were growing up there and, you know, slowly evolving into Assemble Tech? Well, a, a lot of people have, a, I guess, a stereotype of, of Texas that, you know, that we're, I guess, a little bit of uh, barbaric in, in, in some of the things we do. And I guess to, to that point, we are outdoorsy people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up in the outdoors. I, I, I grew up hunting and fishing and, and those kind of things. But we do have a lot of, of technology here. So oh, yeah. I, yeah. I like to say it's the, the right blend of, of both. And uh, uh, if somebody dropped me out off out in the middle of the woods, I'd be able to find my way back out. <laughs> um, without too much trouble. Yeah. So we're, we're not as urbanized as some of the other, you know, areas of the United States, mm -hmm. but most people in Texas are, are pretty friendly and hospitable. They're very warm people and they like to have a good time. So the outdoors things, when I grew up, I grew up on a public beach. So we had lots of parties. And, uh, when I was a kid in high school, the way that you, uh, you met girls and stuff was that you, you, you know, had a little garage band and stuff like that. So I started playing uh, guitar when I was about 15 and, and played in bands on the beach, you know, on the weekends and stuff. And oh, okay. it's just, it's just something that I, you know, I, it, it's how I relax in the evening. I'll sit down with my uh, acoustic guitar and play for, you know, I don't know, an hour or so. Any particular and I, and I, style or artists you like to cover, you like to make up your own songs or a little bit of I, all of it? I've played in every venue from hard rock uh, up to punk rock and all that stuff through okay. as I grew up. But uh, uh, now I just kind of arrange my own stuff and amuse myself. Yeah. I, I've done covers of, you know, just about everybody and been in every kind of band uh, growing up, but just, just for entertainment. I mean, just not, not really uh, uh, commercial or anything. Sure. Just, you record anything? Just a bunch of guys. Yeah. Um, sometimes. Yeah, I do. I have recording equipment and I'll put some tracks down on tape. I was talking to a couple of guys here that play and I said, you know, every time I try to write the lyrics, it, it ends up sounding like a Dr. Zeus book. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I just like to arrange the music and let, you know, the poets write the, uh, write the lyrics. I, I would not call myself a guitar player. I was 
I am more of the uh, the the punk DIY aesthetic. So it was right. just teach me three chords, and then I'll figure out the rest on my own. I don't need any of those, you know, mm-hmm. fancy dancy lessons. And I remember learning years ago, and I just you know chord my way through things. But the first thing I ever wanted to do was not play cover songs or try to figure out you know Stairway to Heaven riff. It was right. I wanted to get a four track recorder and just make up songs. It's incredibly satisfying, even if I'm horrible, you know, to have something finish at the end of the day where you mix it and you're like, wow, I, I made that or we made that. It's kind of cool. Right, right, yeah. right. It, it is kind of It's a great cool. feeling. Yeah. And, and interesting enough, when you say the three chords, uh, most of every popular song is is basically three yeah. chords. Yeah, and or then two. It's, it, yeah, it's improv from there, right? Yeah. I mean, you just embellish, but it, you know, the progression is typically a two or three chord progression. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still do it from time to time. The music to intro this podcast was done in GarageBand on an iPad in about 15 <laughs> minutes. There you have it. Uh there you have it. Yeah, it's a it's a great hobby to have and again kind of keeps your mind sharp instead of just sitting around watching movies or playing video games or something like that. Not knocking those things, but you know, it's keeping you sharp. So let me wrap up with this then. This is a good segue. All right. I have, uh, or I give you the opportunity to go to a desert island by yourself for, you know, a few weeks, a few months, or something like that. In addition to an acoustic guitar and a fishing pole, I'll let you bring those because those are perfect for a desert island. I say you could bring with you, David, one album, one book, one movie. We'll start with an album. What album would you bring with you? Oh, it'd have to be Dark Side of the Moon. You sure you don't want to think about it? No, I, I, this question has come across me before. Okay. And it, it was tough to pare it down from three, but uh, definitely Dark Side of the Moon uh, yeah. for sure. Maybe the greatest headphones album of all time. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, how about a book? I read a book when I was in fifth grade and it kind of stuck to me. It was called uh, My Side of the Mountain. And I don't know if you're familiar oh. with that book. I don't even remember who wrote it, but it was about a kid who lived in the city and he ran away from home. He was uh, a teenager, a young teenager, and went to live on his own in the Catskill Mountains. Huh. And it's a, it's a really, really cool book. Uh, it starts from him, you know, not knowing anything. He's a city kid and about, you know, froze to death and starved to death the first winter. And uh, I think he ended up hollowing out a uh, an elm tree and, building a little house inside of this giant elf train. Uh, but it was a cool book and it always kind of stuck with me. I'm going to have to check this out. And yeah. it sounds like if you read it in fifth grade, it's probably okay for me to read. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. <laughs> uh, finally, how about a movie? Hmm, a movie, I really hadn't thought about it. I'd have to say it would be one of the Avengers movies. My kids and I grew up and uh, I, I have a, uh, a son and a daughter that were just crazy about uh, superhero. Yeah. And uh, we, that was our thing is we'd go uh, when a new uh, superhero movie came out, I would have to say probably the first Avengers movie, because that's where all of them kind of came together. Yeah. A lot of fun and yeah. always entertaining. That's for sure. Well, David, listen, this is a great conversation. It's I'm, I was glad that we had a chance to, to meet, albeit via zoom, but Uh, I'm glad that Mark recommended you to me. This is a great conversation. Thank you very much for doing this. Well, thanks for having me. And I I really appreciate it. It's nice to meet you as well. 